Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for blessing us with this day, for blessing us with the time where we can come together and worship you, Lord. Lord, as, as we go through more of the artists who you have inspired over the years, Lord, uh, just open our hearts and minds uh, to what you would have us to learn. In Christ's name, amen. And I'm going to start once again with another prayer from the prayer. This one is not historic, other than if you consider uh, it coming from the 2019 prayer book, historic. But it's very fitting for the artists, uh, some of the artists we will be working with today. It is, uh, it is prayer 120 in the, in the back of your prayer book. We give you thanks, most gracious God, for the beauty of earth and sky and sea, for the richness of mountains, plains, and rivers, for the wonder of your creation, for your creatures, large and small, and for all the loveliness that surrounds us. We praise you for these good gifts and pray that we may safeguard them for our posterity. Grant that we may continue to grow in our grateful enjoyment of your abundant creation to the honor and glory of your name, now and forever. Amen. So we left off last week with the uh with the reformation and the renaissance uh now as we think back to the renaissance artists we we know that they made great leaps and bounds uh at representing both the the depth of compositions and human figures in a realistic way they went to great lengths michelangelo actually studying the human form in in detail uh human models cadavers uh to understand how how the body worked better there was still room to grow though for us in artistic ways as far as representing reality and so on the back end of the renaissance comes the baroque period uh, now, there are several different characteristics of the Baroque period, but one I really want to focus on is the idea of chiaroscuro shading. That is deep, deep light, I mean, deep uh, differences between light and dark. And I think the artist who captures this best from that early Baroque period is... Caravaggio. Uh, no, uh, Michelangelo Maurice de, de, Car de Caravaggio yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, was, I, I think, one of the great artists of all time. This is his painting of the calling of St. Matthew. And notice the, the strong differences 
between light and dark in this, and I'm really glad now that the lights are off in here uh, because because uh, uh, because if if they weren't, you really couldn't see the dark places on this. But but you'll see now. There are several noticeable things about this, but you'll see. Uh, this is Jesus up here. He's, he's the one pointing. And he's pointing to Matthew. Down here, Matthew has his head over the table. He's counting his coins and everything. Uh, he also, they've captured this semicircle around Matthew. And also a triangle down. And you follow the light all the way down to where you are drawn to St. Matthew at, at the table. Uh, one thing you'll notice about Caravaggio, and this is true of a lot of painters of his era, uh, much of the time you're seeing people in normal, everyday clothes of that era. Um, this isn't always true. We'll, we'll see... Uh, the next painting, it's very traditional clothing, but, uh, but he used models. Uh, the models he used were typical street people, usually the very, very lower classes. Caravaggio did not have a great lifestyle. He, he uh, was always in the taverns, the pubs. He got kicked out of more than one city because of fights. That he that he got into in the pubs, uh, uh, many of his models were were lower class people, sometimes prostitutes, uh, and and others. So they have a very earthy feeling about them. They are not typically very pretty people, uh, uh, and yet that brings a quality of realism along with the clothing that you know they were probably wearing. Um, and and the very earthy settings to his work. He had picked up on the realism of, of the Renaissance artists and run with it. You can see some of uh, the other Michelangelo's uh, study of form and everything coming through in Caravaggio's Work like where where you see this is called the incredulity of Saint Thomas, and you see Christ bringing Thomas's hand into the wound of his side, and the folds of skin and everything are are so intricate, so so detailed. Uh, and again, with the characters, you can tell these these are real people that he is painting. My other favorite person from this period, but from the north, uh, uh, Caravaggio, of course, was from Italy. One of the Dutch painters that I like from this era is Rembrandt. And we're on. Okay, so this is Rembrandt's picture of the Supper of at Emmaus. Of course, Rembrandt is doing something a little bit different. His, his paintings are rougher. He, he loves to capture 
uh, the emotion in people's faces. Uh, he, he almost throws forward to the uh, Impressionists just, just a tad, even though they are two centuries later. Uh, but again, with the light and dark, you're seeing, you're seeing Christ. Of course, you know, they don't know it's Christ, and so he's, he's seen in shadow with, this, uh, with the light around it. Cleopas is, is just stand, staring there at him, you know, enraptured. Um, uh, what I uh, particularly love with Rembrandt. Now, here is Rembrandt. This is called The Prodigal Son in the Brothel. Uh, so this is, this is the prodigal son in his, in his wild days. Uh, and Rembrandt paints himself and his wife in this, in this painting. So this is both, this is both a depiction of, of that famous parable. And yet he is, he is in this painting uh, as the prodigal son. Uh, again, notice the modern clothing for that period of time. And this, this is one of my favorite paintings of all time. This is done 30 years later, probably around uh, within the last two years of Rembrandt's life. And it's a much more sober painting. Uh, we, we see uh, it's, the, it's the return of the prodigal son. Uh, the prodigal son, he, he's obviously so ashamed, and yet the father just comes and embraces him. It's an, it's an all-around embrace. Meanwhile, the older brother is standing there you know, very contemptuously with others in the background. Uh, the Catholic writer of the last century, Henry Nouwen, uh, wrote a whole book about this work of art and the uh, scripture it was based on. He, um, he, he writes, Rembrandt it, here is as much the elder son of the parable as he is the younger when during the last years of his life he painted both sons in return of the prodigal son, he had lived a life in which neither the lostness of the younger son nor the lostness of the elder son was alien to him. Both needed healing and forgiveness. Both needed to come home. Both needed the embrace of a forgiving father. But from the story itself, as well as from Rembrandt's painting, it is clear that the hardest conversion to go through is the conversion of the one who stayed home. Moving on from the Baroque period, which is very hard for me to do. I absolutely love this period in art. The depth of the colors, the the uh, the 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 distances between light and darkness. 
we go into what has existed since before the Baroque period and exists to this day, which is realism. Uh, this, uh, this is Jean-Francois Millet, uh, The Gleaners, and basically it is what it says it is. It is the ongoing, uh, the ongoing quest to represent reality as much as possible within artwork. And so you have all of these natural scenes, all of these scenes of regular everyday people. Uh, and, and it is the predominant form of art into the 19th century. A few things happen in the 19th century that change this. One is something, what can represent reality at least, at least, you know, viscerally, what, what, what seems to represent reality better than a painting ever can? A photograph. Photography exists, begins, photography is invented in the early 19th century, and suddenly we don't have as much need to accurately represent reality in paintings as it is. And so artists are like, well, what can we do? What can we capture that photography cannot capture? Initially, one thing is color. But also, also, just, just the impression that we get from reality, an interpretation of reality. And so we have, in France, the Impressionist coming about. These are some later works by a couple of the great Impressionists, probably the two most famous Impressionists, Claude Monet and Auguste Renoir. You can always tell the difference between these two, even though they have very similar painting styles, this broken brush stroke technique, which is absolutely fantastic when doing water. I've tried to master that myself, and I'm not there yet. Uh, but, but Renoir does much more of representing people in his paintings. There is a movement because of the brush strokes that he captures that, uh, that is not always as represented in more realistic artwork. Coming on the back, sort of as the heirs of the Impressionist are the post-Impressionist. They break a little bit more from reality. Uh, their influences... And I think specifically of, of people like Paul Gauguin is to break with just using realistic colors. Uh, they, they develop their own iconographies. Gauguin was a French artist. We have just traveled through two centuries of art. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> Uh, Gauguin was not tied 
to realistic colors. You will see realistic colors, but you'll also see colors that evoke mood or, or have other symbolism. He was, uh, he was very influenced by folk art and also Japanese prints that were readily available there in France during his time. And so these bolder colors that he saw in those prints or that he saw in folk art uh, began to influence him and it made his work very luminous. Also, uh, uh, as, as we've already seen Rembrandt representing himself as a prodigal son, Paul Gauguin, who grew up in Catholic school, even though his, his lifestyle as an adult had its own issues, uh, he, he paints himself as Christ in Christ in the Garden of Olives. He does not paint himself as Christ in, uh, in, the, pic, in the picture we simply know as the yellow Christ. But Paul Gauguin had a roommate, a roommate uh, for a very short period of time, uh, uh, a, a few months really, on whom he had a strong influence. Uh, and that was my favorite artist of all time, Vincent Van Gogh. This does not look like Van Gogh's work that you know, does it? <laughs> so, when most people hear of Vincent Van Gogh's name, they immediately think of a somewhat eccentric artist who painted with vivid colors and violent brushstrokes. They know the artist's life was marked by the mutilation of his ear and his death by what we assume was this self-inflicted gunshot wound. He is well known for his rejection of the church and rumors about an embrace of Eastern mysticism. The romanticism of Van Gogh as a tragic reject and artistic genius is perpetuated throughout the artistic world. However, it may be that those in the art world have made Van Gogh in their own image and rejected some significant aspects of who he really was. Uh, sorry, I manuscripted this part just because if I don't, I'm going to ramble on about Van Gogh for two hours. <laughs> This is, this is how much I, I enjoy this man's work. Who was Vincent van Gogh? In truth, we have no small record of the artist's thoughts uh, uh, throughout his life to interpret his ideas, artwork, and spirituality. We have rather extensive letters written to his closest, closest confidant and benefactor in the world, his brother Teo. Through these writings and other sources, we find a Van Gogh devoted fervently throughout the great majority of his life to Jesus Christ. Van Gogh was the son of a Lutheran pastor. His father was somewhat of a theological liberal, espousing what we would know today as Greningian theology. 
that was that was simply a movement within the Reformed and uh, Lutheran churches there in the 19th century, much with a lot of the post-Enlightenment liberalism that was that was coming along at that time. His, uh, Vincent eventually drifted more towards evangelical Christianity while working for an art dealer in London, becoming a fan of Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody's works. Uh, he desired to become a pastor, and that he actually became. Although Vincent was rejected by the Dutch Reformed Church and others when he failed to master biblical Greek, I understand. <laughs> the Belgian Missionary Society commissioned him as a missionary preacher. Uh, he wound up in a Belgian coal mining community uh, for a couple of years. Many do not know why Van Gogh eventually separated from the institutional church in a schism that, that would last the rest of his life. Vincent thought it wrong to dress fancy and live in the luxurious home while ministering to poor coal miners. Uh, he, he took a small, very run-down apartment. He, um, he gave away much of what was rationed to him by the church as far as food goes. Uh, he... Uh, he did not dress in nice clothing. He often would give away some of the clothing that he had. Um, uh, the, the Belgian Missionary Society felt his desire to live like the poor to be extreme and inappropriate for his position. After numerous rebukes for his impoverished lifestyle, they ceased his funding. After continuing independently for a short time and also being refused by the Methodist Church, Vincent's savings ran out and he was forced to leave the mines and find another source of income. He turned to the employment of his brother, who owned an art gallery in Paris. Theo would fund his brother for the remainder of Vincent's life in exchange for paintings, though only one, and we'll see it in a couple of minutes, only one of Vincent's paintings ever sold during his lifetime. Think of that in context of how well we know him now. Only one. Theo's widow was the first to profit from Vincent's work after both, after both brothers' deaths. Now, uh, here, here we have uh, painting, uh, well, drawings uh, on paper that Vincent did while he was working amongst the coal miners. This is very representative of his early work, long before he figured he was going into painting. Um, it was just a hobby that he had always had. Now, he starts painting... And we still see him working in very realistic, muted colors, very Dutch of him. Um, 
Uh, and you see still life with an open Bible extinguished candle and novel. And you also see he's still very, very drawn to the poor. And so this is a painting called The Potato Eaters. And it is a, gr- a group of poor people eating a dinner of potatoes. Now, this is 1885. So this is only four years, uh, uh, five years, five years before Vincent's death. He died at the age of 37, which is my age right now. Uh, and and his really active period from which we know most of his paintings is only within the scope of about three years. It was meeting Paul Gauguin and the other post-impressionists that changed Vincent's work. So this is The Sower in 1988. 1888, sorry. <laughs> and The Red Vineyard, also in 1888. The Red Vineyard is the only painting Vincent sold during his lifetime. Now, um, spurned by institutional Christianity after his rejection by the Missionary Society and other groups, Vincent van Gogh searched for a Christian faith uh, for those disenchanted with the church. He found a kindred spirit in the writings of Ernst Renan, a theologian who also had a painful schism with institutional Christianity. He adopted many of Renan's philosophies, including the importance of being being Christ-like in humility and servitude. However, while Renan eventually came to disbelieve in Christ's actual divinity, pretty big flaw, (laughs) Uh, and Van Gogh may have toyed with this for a short time, most of Van Gogh's writings, again, we have an abundance of his letters, most of his writings and art indicate that he eventually rejected this aspects this aspect of Renan's theology. He also continued to be influenced by both evangelicals and uh, he picked up an interest in Catholic mystics like uh, uh, John of the Cross and Trace of Avila. So, what of the insanity for which Van Gogh is so well known? The whole cutting off his ear episode and whatnot. This is no fabrication. <laughs> Van Gogh dealt with a condition similar to epilepsy for the great majority of his life. This affected him physically and mentally, and he went through significant periods of depression. Probably, based on his letters, what we, we call today bipolar disorder. Of course, uh, it is notable how many great Christians over the years have struggled with the darkness of depression from reformer Martin Luther uh, to the hymnodist hymnodist William Cooper uh, to the Prince of Preachers Charles Spurgeon himself. Uh, uh, Van Gogh reflected on the state of this sorrow he was perpetually in. 
sorrow is better than joy, and even in mirth the heart is sad. And it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feast, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Our nature is sorrowful, but for those who have learned and are learning to look at Jesus Christ, there is always reason to rejoice. Now, Van Gogh's condition was eventually made worse by his rejection as a vocational minister and then by his habit of sucking on his paintbrushes while working. The oil paints Van Gogh used contained lead, and this habit eventually caused brain damage from lead poisoning that would lead to drifts into uh, mental delusion in Van Gogh's later years, which happened to coincide with some of his most remarkable artwork. Presumably in one of these fits of depression and delusion, Van Gogh shot himself in the abdomen. This is debated amongst Van Gogh's scholars as to whether the wound actually came from himself. The, uh, the angle at which the bullet entered, as accounted by the doctors, it would be very odd for a person to be able to turn a gun on themselves in that way, and yet uh, he, he said himself, that he shot himself. So it's a, it's a mystery. The attempt was initially unsuccessful and Van Gogh stumbled back to the inn where he was living. He remained lucid and conversant in the aftermath, dying several days later from blood loss and infection with his beloved brother by his side. His brother, Teo, died uh, three years later. Van Gogh's work reflects his spirituality, even his struggle uh, with, with the church and against the church. Though he largely rejected the use of traditional imagery, uh, traditional Christian imagery, it does seep in, especially within the last year of his life. These are three of my favorite works by Van Gogh. Van Gogh does a pieta. All three of these are very, very loosely based on the other paintings he was uh, very fond of. Uh, I say loosely in that if you compare them to one another, you would not know one was based on the other. But this is his Pieta, Pieta after Delacroix. So, of course, Mary and Jesus again. Just like his friend Gauguin, this is a picture where he paints himself as Jesus. But he also, in this second picture, the raising of Lazarus paints himself as Lazarus. Uh, and in the final painting, it's the Good Samaritan. For some reason, the movement in, within this painting, uh, Van Gogh's 
uh, uh, violent brush strokes that he is known for cap- captures this movement uh, uh, between between the uh, the good Samaritan and the man who's been beat up, and uh, I just think it's wonderful. Notice the use of two colors uh, in these that are very uh, iconic for Van Gogh: this deep blue and and this golden yellow. Van Gogh in these last. A uh, few years of his life developed his own iconography in the colors uh, that he used, very similarly to the icon makers you know uh, fifteen hundred years before he loved using this deep blue as sort of a the presence of God uh, God is in this scene, and he would do the same thing as as far as as love, especially divine love, with golden yellow, and so these these scenes are abounding with uh, God's presence and God's love. Now, we. I'm sure everyone in here has seen this painting before. And, and this is one of those great expressions of his iconography. The Starry Night, which he painted while he was at a sanatorium in France. Uh, you could see the village. You cannot see the village, honestly, as much as you can see the village in the painting. <laughs> Post-Impressionists, they do their own thing. Um, and of course, you see the abundance of of that uh, of that deep blue and those golden yellows throughout the painting, uh, both both in the heavens and in the village below. And you see, uh, of course, the stars are are glowing and everything. There is the swirling that is very typical of Van Gogh's painting at this point in time. His paint often comes half an inch off the canvas. It's remarkable. And down in the village below, every one of the little houses have that, uh, have that glowing uh, golden light within their windows. Except there's one place. There's one place where Van Gogh is saying that God's love does not exist. One place with black windows. And it's the church. He never, he never reconciled, not at all, uh, with, with the church uh, in the context of his faith. Whenever he's, he is widely quoted as saying when I, when I feel the need of rel- religion I go out and paint the stars and this is, this is the primary of, example of, of where he is trying to express this faith and where he has a deep deep struggle against uh, 
the resentment he has with the church. So, what can we take from Vincent van Gogh? He was certainly uh, a far from perfect man, as we see in his lifestyle, in his uh, uh, many areas of his life, and in his relationship to the church. Of course, we would be hard-pressed not to sympathize with how hurt he was by the church's refusal to stand with him in his missionary situation. In the end, it is crucial to recognize Vincent van Gogh's uh, contribution to art uh, through his... Uh, albeit some sometimes skewed Christian lens, and for all of his uh, uh, strengths and weaknesses, uh, he points us. He points me constantly, just just like the impressionists before him, to to see uh, in nature more clearly the uh, 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 how how. Uh, how God has so richly blessed us with the beauty of creation and how, and how it constantly points us or should point us to God. And for those with a low spirit about the fallen world we live in, the brokenness of society the brokenness of ourselves, our hearts, and minds. Let us close with a reminder from Vincent, from one of his many, many letters to his brother, Tego. He says, there is much evil in the world and in ourselves, terrible things. And one does not need to be far advanced in life to be in fear of much, and to feel the need of a firm faith in life hereafter, and to know that without faith in God, one cannot live, one cannot bear it. But with that faith, one can go on for a long time. All right, I've got about five minutes. Questions? Jason. Where, uh, do we have that? It is... Uh, uh, it is um, in his letters. Uh, there are people who have done a lot more work with his uh, letters than I have. I have a small, you know, uh, edited collection. Um, uh, Kathleen Powers Erickson, and I don't know if this is still in print, but she, uh, she documents some of this in her book, At Eternity's Gate, the spiritual vision of Vincent Van Gogh. That's part of where I heard it first, as well as from my uh, seminary professor Steve Halla. He uh, he went into great detail about that, uh, pulling from uh, the letters and uh, the resources that she had compiled. It's a cypress tree. A cypress, okay. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't look very close to a cypress tree, but but. Uh, uh, the first, the first painting that I use, 
behind the prayer is also a Van Gogh picture with the Cypress, uh, with the Cypress tree. I saw this one uh, firsthand in uh, the National Gallery in London, and uh, and I they were just abundant around where he was living at the time, and so that cypress tree though was inserted in starry night uh they've done scans of it as we can do now and that was that was a later addition i guess to uh to add some balance to the painting uh joel i don't think it was so much of of a revolt against photography uh as much as as an overall reaction uh to it if if photography can very precisely replicate an image, what can we give that photography cannot necessarily give? Now, of course, there are some brilliant photographers uh, now, and uh, you know, as as that art form has progressed, um, uh, but. But in in that day, it's like okay, if photography can actually give you a portrait that is a direct portrait of someone, what can we do differently? Another thing that was happening during that impressionist period, I didn't really mention this, was um, uh, in France in the nineteenth century. Uh, things like historical subjects, religious themes, uh, and portraits were valued. Landscapes and still lifes at that point were not. And so the Impressionists also reacted to the trends in that way in going back to these landscapes. Uh, uh, of course, Monet is particularly known for his landscapes, especially his depictions of of water, water scenes, bridges, think, things like that. He he focused on what art until uh, he and Renoir and their friends came came about. People were not doing so much anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if if that was uh, part of Fengo's thinking um just just because uh uh his, his overall disposition and it, he loved uh he loved the contrasts of meaning within within work but uh I actually don't don't know if the cypresses were intentional in that way in his work other than he was he was very surrounded by cypress trees and uh, he loved including them in his work. Um, the, the great thing about cypresses is they very naturally point upward. They, are, uh, they direct your attention in a, in a certain direction. If we look at Starry Night, our attention is directed in a certain direction around the scene. And part of that is the cypress tree going up. And, and then we also follow the swirls around. We eventually land in the village. 
after after traveling from from the Cyprus, which we imagine is on a hill, all the way through the heavens, and then we land with the people below. That's just the tip of the tree. I always think it was from the ground, but it's actually just the tip. Of the yeah. Sea. Yeah. Totally we 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 are assuming the the lower part of that scene. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you.